So if you could take a seat, please, and we'll, we'll begin as we're going to be continuing today on the Sermon on the Mount. We're going to be concluding the, the last part of the Sermon on the Mount. It's wonderful to see everyone here today. Uh, and so we're going to be, you could do a lifetime on the Sermon on the Mount. Uh, you could, there, there's actually sermons. I remember John MacArthur once said that he did the Sermon on the Mount and people, he said that those of you who are now in high school, we're, not, we're in elementary school when I started the sermon. So it's, uh, it happens. So uh, we're going to try to fit in two chapters here. And uh, so we're going we're gonna, to uh, focus on chapters 6 and 7. So if you have your Bibles, we'll, we'll be focusing on that. And let me make sure this is working. Good old technology. So perhaps you have doubts. Perhaps as, as a Christian, you look at your life, you, you, you deal with your, your mess, your sins that you deal with every single day, and... There's times that you find yourself in a cycle of sin. There's something in your life that you are dealing with, that you're struggling with, that you kind of look and say, how in the world can I be saved? I mean, I'm a mess. I keep dealing with this addiction. I keep dealing with this, uh, this, this way of um, my personality, my, my impatience, my, my gossip, my my times where I lust and I, I turn to pornography and I, I'm, I fall, fall into all these different things. And the list can be big or small, but regardless, they are an offense against the Holy God. And you look at your life and you say, how in the world can I be saved? And I don't know about you, but I think we've all dealt with the same thing because we're all sinners and we all deal with those struggles. And so we can all relate with, to one another and perhaps there are people here or that are watching that are indifferent to sin. They call themselves Christians or they say they're religious and they really don't feel too much bad about sin. They're not offended when they hear the Lord's name taken in, in the Lord's name in vain, taken in vain. They, they're not offended by seeing sexuality in, in, in movies and things like that that are offensive to God. We, they're not offended when they see agendas taking place in our culture that set, twist what God has designed. They're not offended by these things. And that should be even more concerning if that would be you. And so we've been going through, in the last few weeks, the Sermon on the Mount, and it started out with the Beatitudes, which were this, uh, th this beautiful illustration, this kind of summary of what some fruits are of a Christian. Obviously, we know the fruit of the Spirit and we, it starts with love and ends with self-control in Galatians, but Jesus talks about some fruit to say, blessed are the poor in spirit. You, know, you think about that, that someone who is emptied of themselves, that they are, they are poor, they know I am nothing without Christ. I am poor and I need Him. That's humility. They, they mourn over their sins. And in turn, they're, they're people that are... That, create peace in the world. That's why we're salt and light. I mean, if you took Christians out of the world, I mean, if you eliminated Christianity out of history, there would be slavery would exist. You would see all these other things that the treatment of women, all these things would have been a complete disaster because Christianity fundamentally changed history, changed the world. 
And so you see that also when you're persecuted. When you're persecuted, you also are someone who perseveres in the midst of, pers of persecution. And then we talked about being salt and light. To, to, be the to show the action of a true believer is to display that you're a Christian and in the dark world and to be a light in the world. And today we're going to be talking about a warning for the self-righteous, uh, discerning the fruit of a true believer. And so in the previous chapter, in Matthew chapter 5, verse 16, we read this, let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. And then you want to examine that. What does that mean, your good works? Well, Christ is the root. That's how you're saved. By faith, by in grace, by grace, by in faith, faith alone, grace alone, in Christ alone, right? That's how you're saved. Not by your works, and so no one can boast. But... The root, the root is Christ, and the fruit of your relationship with Christ, the transformation of Christ in your life, is the fruit of your life. It, it, it comes outwardly. When God changes your heart, you outwardly repent of your sins, and then you begin to strive for holiness. You, you hate the things you used to love, and you start to see this. Sometimes it's a slow process, but, sometimes, but you see a change little by little. And in, in Ephesians chapter 2, it says this, But God, beautiful transition because before he said you were dead in sins you're you're a child of wrath you're not a child of God I mean this harsh words and he says but God being rich in mercy because of his great love and what he loved us even when we were dead in our transgressions a dead man can't do anything made us alive together with Christ and by grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus so that in the ages to come he might show the surpassing riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus for by grace you have been saved through faith and this is not of yourselves it is a gift of God not of works so that no man may boast now this is the part I want to focus on for we are his workmanship. That word workmanship in the Greek is poema. It's, it, you're his poem. He's, he's, he's displaying his majesty, <clears throat> majesty through you. And he's, you're created in Christ Jesus for good works. Okay? Which God prepared beforehand. So even your good works you can't take credit for. Not only your salvation, but your good works. So that we may walk in them. And so what we see in chapter 6... If you look in chapter 6, and we're looking at verses 1 through 18, and I'm just, I'm just showing a few verses here because it's a long chapter, so feel free to take some time during the week to study through this. But in verse 1, it starts off with these words. Beware of doing your righteousness before men. Okay, wait a minute. But he said in chapter 5, it, wait a minute, what does it say? It says, in such a way that you, they, <clears throat> they may see your good works. But now he's saying, beware of doing your righteousness before men. Well, here's the difference. To be noticed by them. And then the, chapter 5, he said, to glorify your Father who is in heaven. Your good works, the things you do, the fruit of your life, is to point everyone to Christ, not to yourself. Not to say, wow, he's such a great guy. Because we're not without Christ. Uh, once, someone once said, the only thing good in me is Christ. 
And so we look at what he's about to do now. And Jesus is about to tear down some pride now. And he's, he uses some illustrations that, that are very common in our day, but also very common in, in Jesus' day especially. And he uses the Pharisees as a way to contrast what a true believer is. And today people like to say, <clears throat> like to say well, you know, Jesus was harsh with the Pharisees, but not with like the everyday guy like myself. So like he was, he was cool with the everyday person as if he was just hanging out with the prostitutes and drunks and just chilling with them at a dinner table. No, he was calling them to repent as well. And the Pharisees were an illustration that if you have the same view as them, that you are dependent on yourself for your salvation, that you can do, you can work your way to salvation, that you're not that bad, then you are just as bad as the Pharisee. And so he's given this illustration about giving to the poor in verses 2 through 4. And he says, Therefore, when you give to the poor, do not sound a trumpet for you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets, so that they may be glorified by men. There's the key words right there. By glorified by men. Truly, I say to you, they have their full reward in full. And, <clears throat> and when you give to the poor, do not let your left hand know what your right is doing, so that, in your, that your giving may be in secret, and your Father who sees what is done in secret will reward you. And what he's not saying here is that no one can ever know what you're doing when you give you're nice to people. Oh, I can't tell anybody that I'm being nice. It's, it's not to say that the church can't go and put on their Facebook page and say, all glory to God alone. God provided money so that we can go and help the poor. That, that, that's exalting God. That's, that's notifying what, how God's funds are being used. That, that the heart issue is, what is the motivation? Are you trying to glorify yourself, puff yourself up? Are you trying to do a selfie and say, hey, look, I'm giving a homeless man some, some money. Selfie, Instagram. <laughs> and then you're like, all right, get out of here. No, that's not how it works. And many people do that kind of stuff. And so this is what he's trying to say, is that in, back in the day, in the Eastern religions, they would have trumpets. And it was not, would not be uncommon if a Pharisee probably would go and say, let me find a guy who's poor and has a trumpet. And what they would do is oftentimes they would blow a trumpet whenever someone would give to like honor that person. And so imagine that, like, hey, that guy's got a trumpet. I'm going to give you some money and toot my horns, literally. So he's, he's, there's, some, there's some historical things there, but also it's, it's also symbolic. It's also about saying, like, this is a guy who wants to get some credit. This is the kind of person when, like, you might have seen in movies, things like that, the blind man on the street, he's got a tin cup, and then they, instead of giving him dollar bills, they give him some coins so you can say, hear it, and you hear ding, ding, ding. So everyone hears what, how much they're giving. And this is the heart issue. It's to say that you're not trying to glorify God. You're trying to glorify yourself. It's all about you. And it's all about, look what I can do. Look what I'm doing. All for the praise and glory of me. And then he goes about public prayer and fasting in, in verses 5 through 18. And he goes and he says, And when you pray, you are not to be like the hypocrites. For they love to stand and pray in the synagogues, on the street corners, so that they may be seen by men. 
So what you're seeing is the Pharisees, they would love to have the, the beautiful attire and they would stand on the corners and they would stand in front of the synagogues and they would you know, you know, do this movements and they would do all these things to try to, try to you know, call attention to themselves. And, and we probably know people like that. I know back in the day, churches that I used to grow up in, there was people that, of course, they had some, the way they expressed themselves were in, that, in a way that was kind of outwardly. And that, that's not to say that their heart wasn't in the right place. But you know that there were some people, though, that loved to go. When everyone started being quiet, they'll be, hallelujah, because <laughs> everyone's looking around and who's that? Well, oh, he's so spiritual, you know. Or they would love to go and say how they practice spiritual gifts and, and, and they would try to show how puffed up they are. Like, I'm, I'm super spiritual. Look how I can speak and the way I can talk and, and what I do and, and how many ministries I'm involved with. And it was all about them, all about their glory. And this is what you're seeing in, in these in this verses as well. We see also what it goes on to. And I mean, this is happening in Roman Catholicism and, and many other denominations and religions as well. And he goes on in seven and says, and when you are praying, don't use meaningless repetition like as the Gentiles do, for they suppose that they will be heard by, for their many words. And then he goes on to say, and when you fast, do not put on a gloomy face as the hypocrites do. I mean, you think about like the Ash, Ash Wednesday when people put the ashes on their head and they're like, brother, I'm... I've been fasting all week long. He's got, he's got these ashes all over his face. And, oh, you, you're, you're, I, I can't do that. You're, you're, you're much better than me. You know, this is, this is what he's trying to say. It's, it's the heart issue. Because it's not to say every single person that does these kind of things is, have that same intention. But I can tell you the vast majority of people do. And it's all about, because the moment that they go and they take off that ashes... They're back into the dirt that they've been doing all week long before. And this is, there's no change. The purpose of prayer is to draw close to God. It's about drawing close. To, it's, fasting is about giving up things so that you can put your dependence on him and say, this phone, this food, these things that are distractions to me, I need to focus on him. I need him. I depend on him. And that's why he goes on to say that don't do this so that you may be, he says, for the neglect of their appearance so that they be noticed by men when they are fasting. It's all about what people think of them. But then he transitions and he says, pray then this way. And you see in this Lord's Prayer, the dependence of a Christian. Our Father, I was an enemy of God, but now I'm a child of God, my Father. But I understand that he's in heaven. He's above me. He's more, he's, uh, he deserves honor and glory and reverence, so hallowed be your name. I want your kingdom to come. I want you to, to pour out your glory throughout the earth. And I want Christ to return so, and people to be come to Christ so that when you return that everything will be restored, the new heavens and the new earth, for that is your will. And I'm not asking you for a Lamborghini. I'm not asking you for this, that, and the other that, that is, is meaningless. Give me what I need, my basic needs. If whatever you try to bless me with, I'll give you praise and glory. Give me my daily bread and help and forgive us of our sins. 
And help me to forgive others when they sin against me. And help me not to give in to temptation. That is complete dependence on, on God alone. This is, this is where we leads to verses uh, 19 in chapter 6 and then through chapter 7 to 12. It says in Matthew 6.24, No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. Now this goes far beyond money. It also is, you, we often have two masters. We often make a god or an idol out of something else. Whether it's our work, our reputation, our, our, even our, our families. Anything that we put above God can become another master. And you can't serve two masters. You can't serve pornography and Christ. You can't serve all these other sins and all these other things and Christ. You have to give up one and turn to Him. And so he talks about in verses 19 through 24 in chapter 6, the treasures in heaven. He says, don't store up for yourselves treasures on earth, both where moth and rust destroy, where thieves break in and steal, but store up for yourselves treasures in heaven. What are you are known by? When people go and say, who are you? What is, who is, and fill in the blank with your name. Do they say, well, he's a businessman. Wow, she's stylish. Oh, she's, he's talented. Oh, he, he's wealthy. Oh, he, he's got this. He's got that. Is that how they define you? Or do they say the first thing that they know about you is he's a believer in Jesus Christ because he is not storing up treasures on this earth. He, he, you know, you, we work, we raise our families, we, we enjoy life, we enjoy our sports, we enjoy all those things, but Christ is our all in all. That's the most that we want to be known for is Christ. And so it leads us then to Matthew chapter 6, 25 through 34. And he talks about how worrying is, reveals our self-reliance. It means that we're worrying because we're depending on ourselves. And he looks up, he says in verses 26, look at the birds of the air. And they don't sow, nor they, do they reap, nor gather into barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who are you? Who of you, be, by being worried, can add a single cubit to his lifespan? And they are not worried about clothing. Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin, Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all of his glory clothed himself like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown into the furnace, will he, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? I mean, he's, he's saying not even a bird drops from the tree without his permission. That's the sovereign God that we have. And we're worried about petty little things when he is sovereignly controlling all things, using everything for our good and his glory. He is, he is the one who said, woke you up this morning. He's the one that put all the stars into place. He's the one that caused the waves to crash into the shoreline and then tell them, go back from where you came from. That's the God we serve. And you're worried about 
little trivial things, even if they're big things in human perspective, to God it is little and he can handle it. And he can control it. And he uses things for our good and for his glory. He uses temptations. He uses trials and tribulations to expose our sinfulness. He exposes our, our reliance on self rather than on him. And I can speak from, from, from experience. That the moment that I thought, oh, I've arrived. I've got it. The moment that he sends something your way that sends your ego crashing to the ground and says, I need him. I need him for, with everything that I have. And so we see here that he's saying, don't be a hypocrite. This is a section here in Matthew 7, verse 5, that people love to take out of context. The moment you go and you say that something in the world's happening that's, that's sinful, whether it's homosexuality, transgenderism, all these other lists of things that we're seeing out in the world, and they say, judge not. The Bible says don't judge. You shouldn't, you, no, you shouldn't talk about sin. That's not good. But what is he really trying to say here? He's saying, do not judge so that you will not be judged for what, with what judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with, what measure you, you, and with what measure you measure, it will be measured to you. And why don't you look at the spe- why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye, but don't notice the log that is in your own eye? So what he's trying to say here is that you think that you are all that. That you've got this huge log in your eye. He uses this dramatic illustration to say, you've got this massive log sticking out of your eye. You're going to, you're t- to tell your brother in Christ and saying, why are you talking about sister so-and-so and the way she's dressed the back? You know that's a sin. Why, you just went home to your adulterous relationship the night before. That's that's a hypocrite right there. That's someone, how dare you? How dare you go and tell somebody about their sin when you're doing dirt and you're doing sin every single day and not repenting of it? That's, he, he's not saying don't judge because we'll see. He's saying fix your own life before you fix your brother's life. Because if you are trying to love your brother, like Galatians says, try to restore your brother with love and compassion, but don't get puffed up because you could fall on the same thing. So what he's trying to say is, fix your life, repent of your sins, do the right thing, and then out of love for your brothers and sisters, then you can help them with their sins and say, come on, brother, we shouldn't talk that way, and let's, let's walk together, let's, let's, let's do the right thing, and, and, and oh, thank you, brother, I, I, didn't, I didn't catch that, I shouldn't have said that. That, that's how Christians behave. That's how they react. They don't get offended when someone brings up sin and things like that. So what is a hypocrite? Well, one person said one time, a hypocrite is like a clean glove that, which hides a dirty hand. He acts as if he's good when he isn't. A hypocrite preaches by the yard but practices by the inch. A hypocrite prays on his knees on Sunday and prays on his neighbors on Monday. A hypocrite is a man who lets his light so shine before men that they can't tell what's going on behind. I've got to say that one more time. So we said in Matthew chapter 5, let your light shine. Well, he's not letting the light of, shine, the light of Christ shine. He's light, letting his own glory shine. He's, he's, it's all self-glory. And he's saying in there, and so he's puffing himself up, look at all my works, look at all my good deeds. Well, he's got all this dirt in the background, and they're blinded to see the truth about him. But then he goes on and he says, the eye is the lamp of the body. 
so that if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light that is in, your, in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? And so what you're seeing here is he's saying that, you know, you're, you have this, you're, 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 you're hiding your sins, you're, you're, trying, you're covering up your, 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 your sinful life, and yet, and so if you are, if your, if your eye is sinful, if, if the, and that was kind of like this, to say what, if the heart, if the heart issue is, is not right, you can try to fool people when they ask exterior, but if your heart's not right, the, the, the people always say the eye is the window of the soul. You know, well, that, there's some truth to there. You can, you can in, in a lot of ancient times, they would use the kind of analogies kind of like that. And you can see that he's saying right there, if then the light that is in you is darkness. So really, it's a false light. It's not even, you, you're faking it. How great is that darkness? But then he goes on and he, he says, you hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you'll see clearly so that you can then go to your brother and say, brother, you have this speck in your eye. And let me help you with that. I love you and I want to do the right thing for you. And then he also says, now you have to judge righteously. He says, don't give what is holy to dogs and don't throw your pearls before swine. In other words, if you're going and you're preaching the gospel to people and they are mocking you and they're making fun of you and they're constantly ridiculing you, don't give them the jewels of the gospel any longer. Not to say you don't pray for them. They've heard the gospel. Let, let the seeds of the gospel do a work. It'll either, it'll, it'll, the gospel will always do what it's supposed to do. It will either save them by the power of God's Holy Spirit, or it will condemn them. And so either way, God gets glory. And so he's saying, you have to judge. Who's swines? Who's the dogs? You've got to judge accordingly. You have to use discernment. And then he goes on in Matthew 7, 11, and he says, Ask, and it will be, and you'll be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receive. And whoever seeks, finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. You, you see this, this, uh, this area where he's saying in, in here, and he talks about, um, or what is a, a man among you when his son asks for a loaf, will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, and he gives them a snake. If you who are evil, <laughs> and you give good gifts to your kids, then how much more will God give to his children? And so you see that these gifts from the Father are what Jesus has described as necessary for disciples. Ask for righteousness. Ask for sincerity. Ask for purity. Ask for humility. Ask for wisdom. And those who know their need for these things will ask God for these things. They won't ask for trivial things. They'll ask for these things. And that's a sign of a believer. When you desire righteousness, when you desire holiness, when you desire to be humble and, and you seek wisdom, this is important. And so the authentic fruit that we see in a believer is produced by Christ alone. By Christ alone. These are a terrifying section in the Sermon on the Mount. And Jesus says in verse 13, he says, Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction. And there are many who enter through it, 
For the gate is narrow and the way is constricted that leads to life, and there are few who find it. And you're seeing this analogy of this broad path that people are flooding into hell. It's the easy way. Just give in to your sins, go watch pornography, fornicate, uh, watch pornography, fornicate, get drunk, do all these things, and go out and have a good time. Enjoy, have your best life now. But if you think you're escaping God in hell, hell is not the absence of God. He is omnipresent. It is God pouring out his wrath for all of eternity upon the unbeliever. And what is their reaction? It's not that they're having a good time parting up with all their friends. It says gnashing of teeth. It is angry. It's not them repenting of their sins. It's them saying, I hate you, God. How dare you send me to hell? How dare you? I was a good person. Look at all the things I did. I'm a good person. How dare you do this to me? They have, they have no concern for the righteousness and holiness of God. They think that if you want justice, justice is all of us be in hell. But if you want grace, put your faith in Christ because he is our all in all. And he goes and he says in verses 21 through 23, Christ Lord is Christ Lord of your life. He says a good tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a bad tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. We have this pear tree that's in the back of our house. And it's from the exterior, from our, our view from the window, it's a beautiful tree. It's up on the hill and it produces flowers, and it looks beautiful. But it's, we started noticing that the, the fruit was not producing in the, the year past, and, and it did the, the year before. Well, if you go on the other side of the tree, there was all this contamination. These insects had uh, started to eat inside of the trunk and all these kind of things, and we had to cut down this huge part of the tree. So from one side, it looks beautiful but it didn't bear any fruit. It had little bits here and there. And then on the other side, it was rotten. It was bad. And this is what he's trying to say. You can try to fake it, but it, it'll be, it'll, we'll find out if the fruit is good or not. And so he goes on to say these terrifying words. He says, Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, in your name did we not prophesy? In your name cast out demons? In your name do many miracles? And, and then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me. You practice lawlessness. These are people that wanted the benefits of God, but didn't want God. They wanted his peace, they wanted his joy, they wanted his love, but they didn't want to surrender their lives to him. He was not Lord of their lives. And so they said, Lord, Lord, I went to church every Sunday. I walked that aisle that one time in 1983. I said the Lord's Prayer. Yeah, but you lived like a devil all the rest of the time. I don't even know you. And Luke, he says something else. They, they, they say to him, you ate with us. You and I drank together on a, at the dinner table. We, we sat together. You preached on our streets. He says, where do you come from? I don't know you. Those are terrifying words for Jesus 
on the judgment throne to say those terrifying words. Jeff O'Hara said this, Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and, don't, do, not, and do not the things I say? You call me the way, and you walk me not. You call me the life, and you live me not. You call me master, and you obey me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. You call me bread, and you eat me not. You call me truth, and believe me not. You call me Lord, and serve me not. If I condemn you, blame me not. So, if we struggle with sin, how do we know that we are Christians? How do we know that we are believers? Why, if we have these doubts that I'm struggling with these sins, or that person is displaying sinful behaviors, how do we know that they're Christians? I always go back to this. What is your relationship with sin? You know, it's easy to go and say, I love Jesus. It's easy to say, do you know Jesus? It's another thing to say, does Jesus know you? It's, another, it's one thing to say, you know, I, I love God. You know, he, he's, he's great. He's my homeboy. Yeah, the big man up in the, sta- up in the sky. Yeah, I love him. Yeah. But what's your relationship with sin? You don't hear people talking about that on pulpits. You don't hear people oftentimes professing Christians talking about sin, saying, brother, man, I've been dealing with this sinfulness. I've been dealing with this struggle. I, pray for me. Help me. Help me through this. It's someone who hates their sin. They, they mourn over it. They're tired of it. And they're worn out by it. But they find their comfort in Christ. They find their hope in Christ. And as we're coming, kind of getting to the closing here, but I wanted to share this quick story. It, it was told by Dr. Harry Ironside. And he told about this missionary in China who was translating the New Testament into Chinese language, and he, assisted by, he was assisted by this Chinese uh, scholar. He was a Confucianist, and uh, he, he, he never had been exposed to Christianity in his life. And week after week, they're translating the New Testament, and they sat by each other day after day, translating biblical text. And when the project was nearly complete, the missionary told his friend, you have been great help to me. Uh, I could have never gotten along without you. Now I want to ask you a question. As we have gone together through the New Testament, hasn't the beauty of Christianity touched you? Wouldn't you like to become a Christian? The man replied, yes, Christianity does appeal to me. I think it presents the most beautiful system of ethics I've ever known. And I believe that if I ever saw a Christian, I might become become interested and maybe even become one. But, exclaimed the missionary, I am a Christian. You? The scholar said to him. You, a Christian? I hope you don't take offense to this, but I must tell you that I have observed you and listened to you from the beginning. I understand the New Testament. A Christian is one who follows Jesus. And Jesus said, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And you cannot be a Christian, for I have listened to you as you have talked about others in an unkindly way. I observed, too, that whereas your New Testament says that God will supply all your needs and you don't trust him, you worry about this and that, and you check. And if your check is going to be late, and if you become dreadfully concerned, no, you cannot be a Christian. But I think that if I ever meet one, I would like to be like one. 
Pierced to his heart, the missionary broke down and sobbed out in confession and asked God for forgiveness. He asked for the scholar's forgiveness as well. This man was so broken that the Confucianist later remarked, well, perhaps I've seen a Christian after all. See, that's the defining thing of a Christian, that they know they're sinners, they know they can't rely on themselves, they rely completely on Christ. And so is your life built on Christ or self? And that's the closing. Therefore, everyone who hears these words of mine and does them may be compared to a wise man who built his house on the rock. And the rain descended, and the rivers came, and the winds blew and, the, and fell against the house, and yet it did not fall, for it had been founded on the rock. And everyone hearing these words of mine and not doing them may be compared to a foolish man who built his house on the sand. You have these two houses in the same storm, one that was took the easy way, built it quickly, built it with scraps and built it on unstable grounds, Yet another one that took his time. He built on solid ground. He built with the, the prime materials. He was patient. He endured through it all. And when that storm came, one collapsed and was crushed. And the other resisted and st stood tall and persevered through it all. That is what a Christian does. And so the questions that we asked, an authentic fruit of a Christian produces humble works. We're humble we, when we do, we do works, we show a life of humility as we're doing them, and we, it produces complete reliance on God, and it, produce, it is produced by Christ alone. And so, if you do not know Christ, if you have been self-deceived all this time, repent of your sins and put your faith in Christ alone. If you need help, we're here to talk with you, pray with you. Don't leave this place because tomorrow is not promised. You could walk out this door and an accident could happen and you could spend eternity in hell and we don't want that for you. Repent and put your faith in Christ. And for those who are believers that maybe have doubts about their salvation, have struggles with sin, it's blessed to mourn over your sins and rely on the body of Christ to help you through this so that you can endure through it all. And your words would say, I once was lost in darkness night, yet though thought I knew the way, the sin that promised joy in life had led me to the grave. I had no hope that you would own a rebel to your will. And if you had not loved me first, I would have refused you still. But as I ran my hell-bound race, indifferent to the cost, you looked upon my helpless state and led me to the cross. And I beheld God's love displayed. You suffered in my place. You bore the wrath reserved for me. Now all I know is grace. Now, Lord, I would be yours alone and live so all might see. The strength to follow your commands could never come from me. O oh, Father, use my ransomed life in any way you choose and let my song forever be. My only boast is you. Hallelujah, all I have is Christ. Hallelujah, Jesus is my life. Let us pray. Father God, we thank you for this morning that we can come together and read Jesus' words to his church. Words of encouragement, but also terrifying words for those 
who do not desire to obey. Lord God, I pray that you would save those that are lost and that you would comfort those who are struggling with sin and that we would rely on you completely and understand that we have a great need, but we have a great Christ for our need. Go with them today. In Jesus' name we pray. 